1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, Member FDSE. Welcome
0: to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Italian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kate Driscoll, your host. Today, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Marilyn Miguel, author of the book Veronica Franco in Dialogue, published with the University of Toronto Press in 2022. Dr. Miguel is Kappa Alpha Professor of Literature in the Department of Romance Studies at Cornell University and the recipient of a number of prestigious book awards issued by the Modern Language Association. It is a distinct joy to be discussing today her wonderful book on the 16th century courtesan and writer Veronica Franco and to recognize its wonderful success for having been awarded the MLA Aldo and Jean Scalione Publication Award for a manuscript in Italian Literary Studies. In fact, Dr. Miguel's other books on rhetoric and ethics in Giovanni Boccaccio's Decameron also won prestigious MLA prizes in Italian literature, both in 2004 and 2016. So congratulations, Marilyn, on so many fronts. It is a pleasure to have you on the channel, and welcome.
0: Thank you, Kate, for having me. It's great to be here uh, speaking about Veronica Franco.
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, one of the things that I, I just want to start by saying is that Veronica Franco in Dialogue is almost a book as much about writing as it seems to be also about reading. And how we read texts and what we then say about them, sometimes independently of the texts themselves, are key questions that you raise throughout different moments of the book and different reflections that you have about Veronica's writing. So I'd love it if you could just revisit your own reading and writing practices um, over the course of your career and bring us back to moments when you either first became interested in Franco's figure and perhaps even just Italian literature more generally.
0: Okay, so um, I was an undergraduate at Cornell. I did uh, a bachelor's degree in medieval studies as an independent major. And then I went to Yale originally in comparative literature but uh, ended up doing a phd in italian language and literature. Um, I my interests my initial interests were very strongly in poetry so I wrote a dissertation on uh, Dante's theology in the pur- Purgatorio and for my first book I wrote on Tasso's Gerusalemme Liberata. Uh, but I found that it, it was difficult to get audiences engaged in poetry. Maybe there just wasn't the market for it in the same way in, uh, in the 80s when I finished my degree and was working uh, both on Dante and Tasso. And I ended up, um, especially after I, uh, after I had taught five years at Yale, on the faculty and moved to Cornell first on a Mellon Postdoctoral Fellowship and then uh, on the faculty, uh, I found that uh, in order to be able to engage scholars and to participate actively in the debates, it looked as if uh, I needed to be more aware of the market for books and more aware of the kinds of questions that were... um, that were pressing at the time. So even though I began to think about working on Veronica Franco in the early 90s, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment, I ended up working on uh, the Decameron for about 25 years. First, uh, first A Rhetoric of the Decameron, which was published in 2003 and later, uh, The Ethical Dimension of the Decameron, which was published in 2015. Uh, the majority of my work over my career has been about trying to reframe the debate about an author, a text, or tell an alternate story. So I would go into the text and people were hearing certain things, but I was hearing different things. And it wasn't until I began working on the Decameron that I really understood how to uh, make those kinds of arguments effectively. I I think that's why those two books won prizes. Uh, The first was the, the pressing question in the 90s, when women's and gender studies was really getting going in this country and in North America generally, was, is the Decameron feminist or misogynist? And I thought that was the wrong question. And rhetoric of the Decameron is about how to reframe that question, how to rethink the gendered voices in the Decameron, the ways that the Decameron leads us to see forms of progress for women, but then also shows us how those that progress can be shut down. And in the case of ethical dimension, uh, the pressing question for me there was, or the in the profession was, does the Decameron teach us, and if so, how? And again, I thought maybe that's not quite the right question. And I tried to show how the Decameron tests us rather than teaching us how it how its ambiguities bait us, how it sets traps for us, uh, how it leads us to reveal our own ideological biases. And one of the things I learned working on the Decameron that then I brought to Veronica Franco in dialogue is that there are worthy scholarly projects. There are many worthy scholarly projects, but not all of them are worth doing at a particular moment in time. And so to go back to my interest in Veronica Franco, um, I had... First, begun to work on the kinds of ambiguities and nuances and ambivalences that I saw in her poetry back back in nineteen ninety one, and I was thinking, uh, I mean, I can I'll uh, I'll give in in a while after I give some sense of who Verónica Franco is, I'll talk a little bit more about. About what exactly I did then and how my work changed over time, but I around 2000 I began to think of writing a full book on Veronica Franco, an analysis of all of her poetry, in all of her poems in terza rima, and uh, and I I decided to put that project right aside and to. Um, not to do it because I felt in the early 2000s that I would be marginalized in the profession if I worked on women writers. Uh, I think it's very different now. So I was actually able to come back in 2015 after I'd finished Ethical Dimension, I decided to pick up the project again. At that point, there were, um, I was able to see better what my contribution to the debate was, that, that at, at that point, I could see that focusing on the ambiguities, the precariousness, the nuances was, was an important move in the scholarship or would be an important move in the scholarship. And I also had developed a writing style over the 25 years that I had worked on the Decameron that allowed me to deliver meticulous, close readings. In a language that can be understood by non-specialists, that was that was very important to me. The um, I had begun. You your question was really about writing, right? And so now I'm going to now I'm going to deliver on the, the answer to that. I had been working at Cornell with the um, the JS Knight Institute for Writing in the Disciplines. I I had begun to teach first year writing. In the early 90s, the course I teach is called the Craft of Storytelling: The Decameron. And what I discovered is that, um, as I taught first-year writing, my own writing got much better, and I developed a a, a style that I think is distinctly my own, much, much, uh, much more. I think engaging and conversational in, in many respects. I have a very high tolerance for informal language that I include with very sophisticated academic language. Uh, and And so it was that style that I brought to Veronica Franco that I that I think makes the book uh, accessible to people who, might not otherwise uh, just pick up a book that would be an analysis of poetry,
1: right? And something that just blossoms so lovely in that overview of you know your different landscape and working through different authors is really the the strategies that we go through as we evolve, both as writers but also as readers. And something that makes, as you're saying, you know, the, your your authorial voice in the book so accessible and so delightful as a reader of it is that you really seek to be in dialogue with with the reader. And it was such a joy to read and reread different sections where you feel as if you know, you're know you in the book and you're next to us and you're reading it aloud or you're reading it uh, with us. And I think this comes across also especially in the title of, of really how the book starts and in the introduction where you ask us as readers, what do we see in Veronica Franco? And this is a question that the book's conclusion will will return back to, but I can't help but really be drawn here to this language of collectivity that that question signals, right? What do we see? Um, there's an inclusiveness there and in, in, in the plural. And how do we consider um, what we see, not only in terms of Veronica's figure as a writer but especially in her reputation and I know the book has many different interventions and I'd love to hear you share some of your own reflections now um, about this question what do we see in Franco and what does what does it mean to see Franco in a light that is an alternative to that which has cast her really in a very dynamic but really quite also very singular and um narrow role as a feminist celebrity and um yeah how do, how does that how does that vision of Franco evolve over time in, in how you treat that opening question
0: sure so so let me begin by giving some basic biographical information about Franco and then um, and then I'll speak about what drew uh, what drew scholars and artists to her in the late eighties in the mid to late eighties and and throughout the last decade of the twentieth century. So Veronica Franco was born in Venice in 1546 to um, a woman named Paola, Paola Fracassa, who was a courtesan. Uh, her father was Francesco Franco, a merchant. And she married a, um, a physician named Paolo Panizza in the, in the 1560s. But by 1564, she had already separated from him. Uh, She was, uh, we know this because in 1564 in August, she wrote her first will uh, as she was pregnant with her first child. And in the 1560s, she became what is called uh, a cortillanonesta, which sometimes is translated honest courtesan, but more frequently now is translated as honored or honorable courtesan. The honorable courtesans were those who were able to provide intellectual and cultural pleasures, as well as physical ones. Uh, they were distinguished from harlots and prostitutes, from meretricia and puttane. And Veronica Franco was an honorable auto- Likely an autodidact. She sought and maintained contact with literary and political and artistic figures of her time. She participated in a private salon that was run by Domenico Venier, who was a powerful figure in Venice. Uh, her principal works were the poems in Terza Rima, uh, and uh, uh, the familiar letters to diverse people, Lettere Familiari a Diversi. She was. She likely led quite a splendid life in her twenties, but then, uh, around 1575, the plague hits Venice, and she she leaves, does not come back to fifteen until 1577. During that time, her house is basically she's. Uh, her things are stolen, and she loses a lot of the things that she had. She was brought before the Inquisition courts in 1580 on a charge of having used magical incantations, but the charges were dropped at the second trial. And she died at the age of 45 in 1591 after a month of fever. Now, she was uh, as I said, there was a great deal of interest in her in the 80s and 90s. She was really the first woman writer of the Italian Renaissance to be to be studied. It was only later that then people moved to other writers like Gaspar Stampa, Vittoria Colonna, and so forth. And she was she was embraced as a feminist or proto feminist icon. And she she is in many ways she is a really spirited, polemical. Engaging voice, she celebrates her sexuality. I think people, especially people, people find found that very, very compelling. Um, she pushes back at men in certain kinds of ways. She defends women. Uh, she denounces social injustices. Uh, and there was, uh, there were some key. Uh, there was some key scholarship done on her at that time. So, uh, the person who is is really the acknowledged authority in in um, Franco studies is Margaret Rosenthal, who uh, known known in the profession as Tita Rosenthal. And Tita was in the same graduate cohort as as I was at Yale, and Tita worked she did her dissertation on Veronica Franco. She carried out very important historical and archival research in Venice. And that dissertation revised was then published in 1992 by the University of Chicago Press. And its title is The Honest Courtesan, Veronica Franco, Citizen and Writer in 16th Century Venice. So prior to my book, Veronica Franco in Dialogue, this is the this is the only book in English on Veronica Franco. Um, other uh, a, a scholar like Sarah Maria Adler wrote an important piece in 1988 uh, on Veronica Franco's Petrarchan Tercerime, subverting the master's plan. That, along with Rosenthal's book, is uh, is is. The piece that's most often cited in the scholarship, uh, Annie Annie Jones, Ann Rosalind Jones, has an important chapter on Veronica Franco and Luis Labbé. The last chapter of her, "The Currency of Eros. and and Annie Jones is she is a marvelous reader of women's poetry of the sixteenth century. There was also he was also important that in that last decade of the twentieth century, uh, in Italy. Stefano Bianchi published the modern Italian edition of, of Franco's poetry. That was in 1995. And then uh, Anne Rosalind Jones and Tita Rosenthal published their Veronica Franco poems and selected letters, a bilingual edition of the poetry with their translation. Uh, and that appeared in the very important Other Voice series of the University of Chicago Press. The, but it wasn't just scholarship. Other people were looking to Veronica Franco too. So Data Maraini, who is, who is one of Italy's principal feminist writers, produced a play or wrote a play in uh, 1992. The title in Italian is Veronica Meretrice Scrittora. It was published in English translation in 2003 with the title Veronica, Courtesan and Poet but a more accurate title would likely be Veronica, Harlot, and Brightress. Uh, Anne Marshall Herskovitz directed a film. The title of the film in the United States was Dangerous Beauty, 1998, and that was based on Tita Rosenthal's book. Um, what, what, very, what was very curious is that... After 1998, interest in Veronica Franco dropped off quite significantly.
1: Um, Which is so interesting, if it happened right just after her debut in Hollywood, it seems that that actually should have just catalyzed a whole series of of further adaptations.
0: And and the after the moment after 1998 is also the year of the uh the publication of the 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 italian the bilingual edition right so so now people had the had all of the poetry very easily could see both the both the italian on on the left side of the page and the english translation on the right side of the page uh, and and then it was just sp- uh, and then it went, and then there was radio silence. Really, there were a couple of things that that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, I had a uh, a graduate student uh, wrote a dissertation with me. This is Irene Eibenstein Alvisi. Completed her dissertation in two thousand and three with the title "The Dialogic Construction of Woman in the Italian Renaissance," and her final chapter was on the final poem of Veronica Franco's collection and also on data Marini's play. And Irene, like me, was looking for the nuances, the ambivalences, the the questioning of the very optimistic view of Veronica Franco. Uh, and Hannah Chappelle Wojciechowski in 2006 published an important piece in Italica that's titled... Sex, Death, and Poetry in Cinquecento Venice, Veronica Franco versus Mafio Venier. And there she, she offered an, a very important reading of a key poem of the poems in Terza Rima, in which Veronica Franco responds to a man who has written a scathing attack of her. Uh, uh, and this this was Mafio Venier, who wrote the scathing attack in Venetian dialect, whereas Veronica Franco responds in quite literary Italian. Uh, and and perhaps because that article discussed uh, syphilitic versus um, sane sort of integral healthy bodies as as depicted by Mafio and Veronica, uh, and nobody wants, I, I think people are nervous t- about talking about the uh, the less, how should we say, uh, the less optimistic version of Veronica Franco. Uh, I, Stefano Bianchi, I, I, I think it's fair to say that he, he was not very happy about this. He does not really believe that there's stuff about syphilis going on. <laughs> But to come back to even when I look at the fact that Veronica Franco died in 1591 at age 45 after a month of fever, I think what kind of fever was that?
1: Yeah, that was something right. strong. You know, right. something resonates with our time today right. for sure. Yeah. Right.
0: So I think our people. I'm I'm hoping that now is the moment when we can go back and um, understand that. That yes, there there is a we can embrace the side of Veronica Franco that is spirited, polemical, uh, uh, talks openly about her sexuality, uh, but but can we also include in the story about her the some of the elements that people might have found less palatable back then, including the ambivalences, the precariousness, um, the threats of violence. Right. And so forth.
1: Right. And those two things, of course, don't have to cancel each other out. And this is what makes Franco's authorial voice so fascinating because she wants us to experience that um, juxtaposition in different moments throughout her poetry. And, and, you know, you mentioned her letter collection, too. So, Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I want us to maybe just get into then the the, the parts that the book really just explains into and then these really insightful close readings. So for the listeners um, tuning in who have interests um, really across Italian literatures and cultures, let's just talk some uh, about the specifics of the body of poetry upon which the the close readings are based. And so as you mentioned, in 1575, Franco publishes these 14 terza rime, or poems in terza rima, which refers to the meter of the poems themselves. And so I'm wondering if you can just introduce us both to the volume and how it is arranged, and also comment on what it meant for a woman of the Renaissance, not necessarily to be writing poetry at all. I think we're we're well past the moment where um, the the myth is still prevalent that women were not active authors in the Renaissance, and and much in thanks to as you mentioned the other voice series, um, where that features so much of women's writing. But um, what it necessarily meant for for Veronica to be writing poetry in this meter and with specific purposes and audiences in mind.
0: So so yes so the terzini or poems in terzima are are a collection of 25 poems that are verse epistles. In Italian they're called uh, capitoli but actually in my book in order to be more reader friendly I I refer to them Simply as poems, they are as you as you noted. They're written in terza which is the same rhyme scheme that Dante uses in his comedy. There is there is no manuscript of the terza rima. Just there was no also no manuscript of the of the familiar letters to di- diverse people. The uh, the book was published semi clandestinely, and this means that there is no place of publication. There is no publisher. And there's no date. The date that's given, 1575, is the date of the dedicatory letter. Here, yeah. um, the the first fourteen poems are are uh, dialogic poems that they're written on a model of proposal and response in Italian, proposta and e risposta, and. They're they're exchanges between a male author, uh, uh, typically called incerto autore, an unknown male author, and Franco. Uh, So in the first poem, an unknown male author tries to persuade Franco to submit to him sexually. And in some of the print exemplars, Rather than being listed as an unknown male author, the poem uh, the poem is listed as attributed to Marco Venier, who was one of Veronica Franco's lovers. This is the only poem that has such a uh, such an uncertain attribution. The, the theory is that perhaps there was a first print run in which there was uh, in which the poem was attributed to Marco Venier. and then. Then it was pulled, and subsequently this poem and, and the other poems by the male author are by unknown male author. Then in poem two, Franco responds. In poem three, she laments being away from Venice and her lover. And then in poem four, an unknown author responds. In poem five, she tells a man that his virtue, valor, and eloquence have freed her from loving another, and she is now guided by reason. And then poem 6, an unknown male author responds. In poem, and then Poems 7, 9, and 11 are by unknown male authors who, um, in 7, complain of Franco's harshness. Uh, in 9, an unknown male author demands that she focus on him. In 11, an unknown male author praises Franco in the city of Verona, and she has a a variety of strategies for responding to these men and uh, in whom she is not interested. In poem 12, she actually rejects the man quite bluntly. Uh, and then in poem thirteen, which is very frequently anthologized, she challenges a man. She challenges to a duel a man who has betrayed her, and the man responds in poem fourteen. Those are the those are the dialogic poems, from poem fifteen to poem twenty-five. Franco um, Franco is is in the majority of these cases still writing to a man. But we don't get any response, and it's not in response to a text from a man that we have. And uh, I would say the 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 poems that are most often cited or looked at in this mono, this, this section of the so called monologic poems um, are poem sixteen, the one that I referred to uh, a short while ago. That's the one in which he writes a challenge to a man who has defamed her and the final poem of the collection where franco writes in praise of villa della torre in a in a town called fumane and she also praises the, her host marcantonio della torre um, there the uh, i mean that ends up being a, a, an important poem in the scholarship because it's many many people have read it as quite optimistic as an affirmation of harmony as her being one with nature and that's all part of their um, the kind of Veronica Franco that they that they want to see. Yeah.
1: And something that again, I'm going to return um, perhaps obsessively to this question of of how readers read and how writers write, because it seems that that emerges in the staging of the dialogic, the staging of um, writing and response, and and this framing of of conversation and dialogue that takes place, as I mentioned also in in how you describe the poems, but also in the the structure of the poems themselves, and as as you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, there's so much possibility for for different biases to accompany the way that readers want to read certain kinds of text. And Veronica Franco's um, beautifully um, triumphant voice is certainly one of those that would that would catalyze that kind of desire. Um, And I I do really appreciate how we have to be attentive to how that influences critical approaches taken up in later times. And so something that I was struck by in in just reading the book is its emphasis throughout to really go back to the original, to read the secondary, to, to embrace what other people have said and to study what they've said, but always to go back to the original and sit with those moments of what you call ambivalence, uncertainty, and precariousness. And these are the moments of, as you've just explained that that really push back against the imp- impression that Franco was just unqualified in her heroism. And I think what, what what struck me in reading your voice in the book is that ambiguity and ambivalence in this poetry is an invitation to slow down and an invitation to delay this arrival that all critic all critics have towards a conclusion and one that we can stand by one that we can justify with close readings and with etymological, um, certainties and with sources and all the rest. But, um, to slow down also means then to read longer and to really, um, allow the processes of absorbing Franco's language to expand. And I'm wondering if, if, as you say, this, um, this attention that you had to ambiguity, did that emerge out of your own willingness to read these poems at a much slower level, and now, of course we're we're accustomed to just going very fast through things and to constantly multitask. and what does it really mean then for us to be invited to go at a much slower pace and sit with moments before we arrive at that conclusion?
0: yes, that's that that's a that's a fascinating question, Kate. Um, and I've and I wonder I, I wonder if it's I mean I, I am I, I am someone who has always um, paid uh, I've made my career on close reading and that that that's what I do. I, uh, I I think that's my the strength of my scholarship lies in uh, the attention to fine detail, and the the attempt to portray as accurately as I possibly can what I see in in um, in a literary text. As the profession has gotten less literary in some ways. I have taken it as a challenge to be more attentive to literature. So I'm going, I'm, I feel like sometimes I'm rowing upstream.
1: <laughs> I'm joining you on that stream. I like that stream. I th- that's yeah. good.
0: I'm, I'm, I welcome you here. Uh, the I, I wonder if it's not so much a, a question of slowing down because I'd always I, I was always trying to slow down, but a question of having the space in which to in which to um, provide readings of an entire poem rather than just parts of a poem, or uh, if I think about that that uh, that article by Sarah Maria Adler on subverting the master's plan, right? What it's an article length piece, and it it engages interesting questions about what Veronica Franco is doing with Petrarch uh, and the way that she may be moving a, against the grain, but. If one is to talk about the poems in Tertarima and one is focusing on that and one has only an article-length venue in which to do it, you have to pick and choose your examples. Right? And um, and I think even T- Tita's masterful book has, I mean, a lot of what she does is is deliver historical and archival information, which means also that she she can't. She I mean the book wasn't designed to deliver uh, meticulous readings of an individual poem. It often it gives a, a kind of overview. I as I as I said earlier, my original plan was to was to do readings of all twenty five poems. To sit, I mean I I I would sit with a poem for a long time and. I would try to I was listening to it and trying to figure out what what I was hearing, uh, and wanting to talk about all the parts of the poem. So in fact, even though I began this project, the book in earnest in around two thousand and fifteen, uh, uh, i had I had written parts on the monologic poems and parts on the dialogic poems. And I realized around 2018, 2019, that I was not going to be able to do close readings of all 25 poems. The book might and, have been quite long. <laughs> it would have been I, the book in in print is two hundred pages. I figured it was going to be at least four hundred pages. That would make it. I did not think the University of Toronto Press was going to be happy about this. It was going to be very. I mean, already these books are quite expensive. So just imagine it would be you know, twice what this is. And and I thought it would take me until twenty twenty four to complete. I didn't. I didn't want to. I felt that. There, there was a certain urgency in getting this argument out there, um, and that was how Veronica Franco and Dialogue came to be. Because I looked at the material I had. Many of us who have written books have had this experience, where you think I just want this between two covers. <laughs> exactly. And what can I, what can I do to have it? it? This is not what I originally planned to do, but I want it between two covers, and what's the best way to get it there? And that was and and. And that actually produced a very interesting result because I suddenly had an anthologization of the of the poems. Uh, I was able to do, I did close readings not only of Veronica Franco's poems, but also of the ones by the unknown male author, most of which had not been studied at all. Uh, or certainly they had not received much attention much attention in terms of close reading, and so I think that that was um, it. Less a question of slowing down than of turning my attention to parts of the text that had been um, set to one side. Uh, interestingly, the I remember when my Rhetoric of the Decameron was published and there was a session organized on it at Kalamazoo. And one of the session participants said to me, when I read your book, I had the feeling I was, I, I had come across a completely diff- different Decameron, that the stories I talked about and analyzed were different from the ones that the scholarship was analyzing. So I had, like, I had shifted the lens Right. And I think that that happens with Veronica Franco, too, in this in Veronica Franco and dialogue that I've sh- that I've shifted the lens and and what comes out of this is is a different Veronica Franco and a different unknown male author.
1: Absolutely. And I, I really love when you had said a few minutes ago, this um this desire to read her out loud and to listen to what the poetry is doing. Um, and, and one of the things, and if we can talk more about this unknown male author and, and how, as you say, Veronica uses these different strator- rhetorical maneuverings to position herself in dialogue with him. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about ambiguities, but I, I one of the other points I want to bring out to listeners is that the book is also so much about her versatility and, the readings are so thoughtful in demonstrating here is Veronica taking on the voice of the impassioned lover. Here is Veronica as the dutiful citizen. She's figures from myth. She's male figures from myth, right? She's a surprising figure. And the poetry flexes so many different sides of those of, of that character in ways that really does make it a disservice when you when you read them in the in the degree of attention that you do, um, that would try to oversimplify what she's writing constantly as proto-feminist propaganda, mm-hmm. and Veronica, I think, would really want us to, to treat her poetry with more complexity as you do. And so I want to go back to just the title of the book, the, the the in-dialogue part of that, and I'm struck by its attention to, to, to the construction of communities or the capacity to construct communities, and in thinking about community and relationality as how they serve Um, they serve as products and both sources of dialogue it seems and your attention to Franco's voice is that she's so deeply aware of how she positions herself in relation to others and especially these these men, these these unknown men and I wonder if some listeners and some readers of your book might when when they think about the literary genres that create communities they might think first of something like the letter Um, and 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 be hesitant to to read lyric for its socialities and for for its ability to construct community. So I'm wondering how how you see Franco's voice as capable of doing this in ways that might share certain similarities with the traditions that women so actively involved in were involved in as Franco was too. Um and but what what maybe what's particular about Franco's voice that can build a nexus of of social relations?
0: Hmm. So, these are um, so these poems in poems in Tettarima are uh, are verse epistles, right? They're all, with the exception of with the exception of the final poem, which is the only one that has a um, has a rubric. It's in praise of Fumane. And but the others are all addressed to people. I'm, I'm thinking there's one in which she addresses herself. Um, the The issue of community is, uh, if I think about the dialogic poems, I, it, as as I noted when I when I gave the a rundown of. What what uh, they're addressing, they're either a man um, addressing Franco wanting something from her, or in two cases, her addressing a man. Neither n- in neither of those cases is she ask really asking for something from that from that man, which I think is which I think is interesting now. Now that this comes up, the. The one, my chapter on poetic identity and community is about poems three and four. I, I, I found that I, I found that chapter particularly hard to write. Uh, I'll, I, I'll be interested if to see what um, what people's reaction is in, in book reviews and other kinds of venues. But what I was struggling with as I as I spoke about as I wrote about Franco's poem three uh, is how to describe her her relation not only to the man she is addressing but also to a a, a kind of a larger community of na- in nature that she imagines. Kind of lamenting along with her, she's she's away from Venice and away from her lover, and she's lamenting that separation. And one of the things that I found really fascinating is that she figures herself as an Orpheus, as a kind of Orpheus in nature. I mean, the nature is responding to her in the way that nature responded to um, Orpheus as a as a singer. Uh, and uh, and yet, she uh, and and so I think she wants that kind of community. I, I what I see in the what I see in the scholarship often is that uh, the the scholars who embrace Veronica Franco liked uh, liked her affirmation of her sexuality. That is her. Her sexual, her as a sexual being with a man, but what I think Veronica Franco tries to do a little bit in poem two when she's responding to the man who wants sexual favors for her, uh, and she and she is is emphasizing her uh, writing as well as her sexuality, but also in poem three where she's she's. Thinking about herself as write, writer and not only sexual being, her the very end of at very end of that poem, she does tell the man that she will come back to him and she she will um, be glad to. I, I've forgotten how exactly how it goes, but that that she will be reunited with him and that particular. Uh, section of the poem is often pulled out and made uh, uh, and emphasized. That is, her sexuality is emphasized. What what I constantly tried to do in working on her is to show how she's not just about affirmation of her sexuality in relation to a specific man or to specific men I mean that certainly was part of her profession but I think she thought her I think it was very important for her to construct herself as a writer and to think about what it means to um, to reflect in meta fashion on what your writing can do and how it and how it produces a, a kind of more expansive community that's not just about one-on-one female-male relations. Absolutely.
1: And it makes me think, too, that if if some of that energy to read Veronica's statements about our sexuality is because we must want to read a sort of autobiographical voice in her writing, it seems then per, the, the responsibility would be on us as readers to embrace All forms of that autobiographical, if we want to call it that, 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 that community formation and where she positions herself and not just pick apart what, what fits really well in anthologies or what we want to uh, emblematize as women's Renaissance history, it seems too.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm
1: -hmm. So I I want to bring us to this fascinating um, introduction. Of, of the term of cognitive reframing. And this comes up um, when, when you're talking about these different ways in which perspective can be rhetorically deployed and refashioned. And perspective really seems that it's another one of these kind of key terms to the story that the book tells, not just the perspective that we in our times use to review Franco's life and her works, as we've been saying, but the perspective that she offers in her own poetry and the capacity for poetry the exciting verve of poetry to create more than one perspective that's something that just feels very very modern so in chapter four you you, you lead readers to this use of that Franco has of cognitive reframing or this technique to allow um, one to consider a situation or this kind of relationship from a different perspective and this struck me as entangled really then in Franco's own oscillations as a reader and a writer in dialogue with these male figures, two figures who have to share um, a, a certain kind of reality, but then also maybe correct each other's version of that reality. And so I, I, I want to know first of all, how did the concept of cognitive reframing find you during the writing of the book? And were you considering it in tandem with these revisions to Franco's authorial voice that you felt were really needed? In the scholarship, so your book offers this new perspective in a way that felt somehow resonant with Franco's ability to provide new perspectives.
0: So, so this this was one of the questions I thought most about before, uh, before I I came on. I thought, yes, how did cognitive reframing find me? And and I think it's so so obviously it this comes from psychology right where therapists change people's viewpoints by for example by re- reframing a problem as a challenge right putting so putting p- more positive spins on and i think what what happens as i read and think about literature is that i'm always looking for how how models how how uh, approaches from our own times, including from quite different disciplines, uh, can be used to help me describe how a given literary text is working. And so I thought, for example, of the central chapter of my ethical dimension of the Decameron, which is called Some Restrictions Apply, uh, testing the reader in Decameron 3.8, Decameron, the eighth story of day three of the Decameron, is about a man named Ferundo who ends up being, quote unquote, sent to purgatory uh, for being a jealous husband. The, uh, and it, it's, a, it's a story in which, uh, as I see it, totalizing evaluations get called into question. So there are ads for wonderful things, you know, advertisements for virtue, Uh morality, character improvement. Uh, but like ads, these often have a fine print disclaimer, right? The sum restrictions mm-hmm. apply. Right, and, and it's in the smallest possible text too. <laughs> right. And so, so, for example, to give example of this, the abbot in the story is said to be most saintly except in the matter of women. And Ferrando... He, later on, he says he, he, will, he promises not to beat his wife or cuss at her except about the wine that she sent because it wasn't very good. So these what, I, I guess what happens is that these things find me or I happen across these modes, and they, they strike me as um, valuable ways to conceptualize a problem That I see in the in the text, the the cognitive reframing I think gives Veronica Franco a certain a certain kind of authority that uh, she's. What is very interesting to me in the in the dialogic poems, and I didn't see this until I had worked on all of them, is that there actually is a logic to ordering them. I think uh, that. The way she pushes back at the at the uh, at the man of the first poem is—I mean, she's she's gesturing toward virtue and valor, and she has certain kinds of rhetorical strategies that are quite distinct from from his. uh, uh, Where he is trying to control her, she uh, and and even there are even moments of uh, that seem on the edge of, uh, threatened violence. Uh, she responds on, uh, with the equations of if you do X, I will do Y. There's a much more reciprocal exchange correspondence going on. And, uh, and she shows herself to be vulnerable and, and capable of, uh, Missing a man and and mourning uh, separation in her in poem three, she repents as a courtesan in poem five, and and talks about virtue. She she she's setting herself up as as someone who is, uh, who can be on the right path, and then she has a variety of strategies for dealing with men who. Who complain about her harshness, or are in, insistent that she respond to them in a certain way, or use adulation and uh, high praise of her and the and the city of Verona where she's she's in? I think all of those are are set up so that it's not until she she's. Yeah, with the cognitive reframing, she's she's developing a more authoritative voice, and then soon that's going to become a blunt rejection. And then in the following poem, poem thirteen, she's actually going to threaten violence. So I, I think it's a question of of how she thought um, she wanted to tell a story about herself that would be most palatable and would put her in in the best light.
1: Right. And I, I, again, I go back to that word of of versatility, because she is embracing at different moments throughout these poems, the voice of absolute agency. And at the same time that she's embracing the terms for cause and effect, if you do this, I'll do this. And so then her actions seem dependent on what The male will do. And two other terms I wanted to to bring our listeners to that come out in the book that I adored reading because of, of the frequency, especially the second one, are obliqueness and murkiness. And I think for me, my experience was that they brought me to almost these visualized spaces, both in the book and then inside the poetry, where the emphasis on the less defined and the more complex had a kind of visual dimension to them. And I'm thinking a little bit about the geometric propensity of that term obliqueness and thinking that here we are towards the, la- the later half of the 16th century, and I can't help but think of this as a kind of pre-Baroque moment in Italian cultural history. And of course, Veronica's was, I, I don't think many people would call her Baroque, but I'm thinking about this pre-Baroque moment a lot with other writers of her time. And murky carries this resonance of the, the plays of kind of light and shadows, um, vision and invisibility that we so often associate with late Renaissance and early Baroque painting. So I just had a few of these thoughts um, for comparison across the arts, but I'd love to just hear you say a few things about um, your arrival at the term obliqueness and murkiness and how it, how it plays in this characteristic of, of Veronica's writing.
0: this this too, I mean, it's, it's this is a fascinating conversation with you, Kate, because uh, one of the th- one of the things that has happened as I've worked on this book is that I've tended to migrate migrate towards certain terms as I myself think about it, right? I, I you you'll have heard me talk about ambivalences, ambiguities, precariousness, right? And I think those are those are the ones that come first to my mind. so I wouldn't. The obliqueness and the the murkiness, I, th- uh, I I I I see that too. And what I so as I was thinking about this this morning, um, I was comparing in my mind different kinds of strategies that Veronica Franco has for producing these. Uh, dense and complex moments in her poetry, and some things that I've been working on recently. Uh, I'll, I'll likely talk about this a little bit later when I get to uh, my current research. Uh, I've I've discovered that, for example. There are some passages in Veronica Franco's poems that can be translated two ways it, to produce two contradictory readings that are, however, uh, both valid as far as I can tell. And so that, that kind of ambiguity or ambivalence there's a the murkiness I think has to do. With Veronica Franco's um, or the the obliqueness and the murkiness has to do with her occupation of multiple subject positions. And so to try to explain this, i'm I'm actually going to read uh, a passage from her tenth poem. And it's I'll read it in English translation, obviously, but it's uh, she's addressing the man. And she's, she's uh, going to ev- evoke the figures of Cupid, Apollo, and Daphne. So she says, uh, on the other hand, I could hardly return your love, especially because it was an attempt to fly without wings. And how could I resist the power of that archer? She's referring to Cupid. How could I resist the power of that archer who, shunning your well-being, shot you with a golden arrow, me with one of lead? But earlier still, his gold shaft reached my heart as I stood firm, incautiously gazing at the other man's celestial face. There a light that robbed the sun of its pride so dazzled me that never will my soul be as contented by any other love." And so my wavering style would no longer stray. I left to free you from love for me with feet eager and longing for flight. So here, the reference to Cupid's arrows of gold and lead bring to mind the moment in book one of the Metamorphoses when Cupid shoots Apollo with a golden arrow. That's going to make him fall in love with the first thing he sees. And then he shoots Daphne with a leaden one, and that's going to make her flee, uh, no sooner, however, does she put the man of the poem, of Poem 9, into the position of Apollo and herself into the position of a fleeing Daphne than she rejects that analogy. She describes having been struck herself by a golden arrow earlier, as if she were Apollo. And the object of her love, this other man, is is described as a godlike figure, a, Apollo-like in its in its radiance. So what she's what is she doing with this reference to Cupid and his arrows of golden lead, she represents her addressee as Apollo-like and herself as Daphne-like. She points out she herself was already in the role of Apollo, struck by Cupid's golden arrow as she gazed on a man, Apollo-like, who became the object of her love. And so what she's um, she is now like Apollo and not like Apollo, whether that's because she flees like Daphne or because she renounces desires as Apollo could not. And what I find most fascinating about this is that she's reaffirming her ability to occupy multiple subject positions and to mobilize them as necessary in order to manage her relations with her male addressee. And I think it's that... that. Uh, Mobilizing multiple subject positions, not not pigeon her holding herself into one or identifying with a particular subject position that is that is producing that uh, prismatic quality, right? she's she's this, but not this. She's mm-hmm. that, but not that.
1: And she wants you to see that in the poetry, which I love too, right? And that she wants the poetry to 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 exhibit that in some way. Um, that's just, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that, that really, really compelling moment of, of, of being and not being at the same time makes me think, you know, what would she have thought of if she had actually read Hamlet? Um, Yes. (laughs) uh, The the last, um, kind of really big question that I just want to, I want to hear your thoughts on really has to do with Venice. And, And you mentioned at the beginning when, about her biographical details, um, that she lived in Venice, she spent time away from Venice. And if we're thinking about her cultural moment, then we also need to think about her cultural place. And many listeners probably know that, you know, Venice offered so many important opportunities, not only for women writers like Franco, we've also mentioned Gaspar Stampa and then later Lucrezia Marinella, Arcangela Terabotti, but especially for women of different types of professions. And I'm thinking especially of women in theater and in opera. And so in your chapter six, which renders beautifully Veronica's attachment to Venice, we're brought again to think about the city on the sea, celebrated in feminine terms as La Serenissima, the most serene republic on earth. But in your reading of this poem, we have this explosive tension between her admiration and her attachment to this city associated with tranquility. And the only moment in this series of dialogic poems where blunt rejection is her voice of choice. And this is exchange 11 and 12. So I'm just curious to hear um, what is it about Franco's relationship with Venice that maybe ignites this new critical voice that we hadn't really seen so far in these dialogic poems? Is this something that, that we see consistent across other writings that employ the memory of Venice. Um, just, just, just your thoughts on that. It seems such a striking moment if she enjoys the kind of witticism of I am and I'm not, but here in this poem, it's nope, not interested. <laughs>
0: right. So I, I think this is, uh, I'm, I'm not sure why she evokes Venice here. I, I, um, I think your question is a really interesting one the, and I'm not sure I, I have a good answer at this time, because my my gut feeling at the moment is that she's using Venice. She's she's setting this up because the man has praised for Verona, and she's she's uh, telling him in no uncertain terms that he he has uh, he, he has. Uh, uh, he has adopted the wrong strategy. That he should have he should have instead praised Venice. I, I, I see it almost as a I see it more as a buffer that if she didn't have the cities involved, she would just be bluntly rejecting him. Uh, but she's 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 got a a, a sideline here where she can reject his rhetorical choice uh of praising praising Venice. I, I I find it baffling because she herself praises Fumane and the, the villa of Marcantonio della Torre at the end. So she's so she herself, I mean she could have one one can imagine, she could have produced a very long poem just as she praises Fumane, she could have praised Venice. There there's Unusually, there is very little Venice in her, in her poems, in terza Despite what I've seen some scholars say that Venice is very much present. Right? One doesn't. I mean, I, Venice is for me a, a very magical city. That I mean, I was there for the first time on my twenty-first birthday, and I, it was. I was just so struck by by the. The light, the um, the mystery of the of the streets, uh, it, it's it, it's really just an a, a astounding kind of physical phenomenon, but she, but that's none that's not in her poetry, and and I and I don't know why, um, I don't know why she chooses to write a five hundred and sixty five line poem about Fuman and the villa but doesn't actually engage with a cityscape that that continues to uh, that continues to perplex me so I, i'm i'm going to i guess what what the, the my answer is I, I think your question is a really interesting one and i and i i think we should be thinking more about how she is using venice but at, For right now, it's it's not clear to me why, you know, why why this comes up in uh, in uh, the the poem as it as it does. What poem? What Uh, right.
1: It's, it's one of those great moments of ambiguity that just encourages us to do more reading and do more <laughs> writing. So on that note, um, Marilyn, I wanna gesture towards wrapping this up by, first of all, of course, thanking you for your time. I know I've taken a lot of it, but also with telling us a little bit about um, what lies in the future for you in terms of research now that Veronica Franco and Dialogue is published in print. So
0: when, uh, when, uh, Veronica Franco in dialogue went to was submitted to the press in um, August 2020, uh, and then went to press. I suppose about a year and a half after that, I I was casting about for what I would work on next, and I decided that I would propose to Irene Eisenstadt Vizi, who'd written that final dissertation chapter on. Uh, on the final poem of the Tercerime, poems in Tercerime, that we do a collaborative piece and that we get this into print. It's, uh, it, we began, so I, I began by taking out that reading and uh, and expanding it and thinking about whether certain parts of the poem needed to be retranslated in order to bring out the message more clearly. And what we thought would be approximately a 35, maybe 40, maybe 50 page essay, because this is after all a 565 line poem and and nobody has done done a kind of sustained reading of it. This has now become 180 pages in manuscript. So, and what we discovered was that the poem really needs a complete new translation. Uh, and, uh, and I think what's most interesting uh, about the poem is I think in the poem, Veronica Franco is working very much as Ovid does. So there's a lot of interest in Ovid recently. Uh, I, I have... Highest praise for Stephanie McCarter's new translation of the Metamorphoses that was published last year by Penguin Books, and for her introduction to that translation, in which she talks about the challenges of of translating Ovid, particularly the passages about rape, because there are some fifty instances of rape or forcible sex activity in in the Metamorphoses. Uh, and she also, she, Stephanie McCarter, has very interesting things that are available on online. What what people have increasingly seen is that when one reads Ovid, one sometimes can, depending on the prism one uses, one can see the affirmation of male power, but one can also see the questioning of that. And... Uh, and I think that is what's happening in the final poem of, uh, of Veronica Franco. That was already present in, uh, in kernel form in Irene's dis- dissertation chapter. And, uh, and we hope to bring it out in, in uh, a book-length uh, sustained reading. So I'm, I'm very excited about doing that. I'm also just very excited about collaborating because I think we should be doing more of that and it's just unfortunate that the profession is is still in many in many places uh, opposed to that kind of collaboration. Or one can only do it if one is full professor and doesn't right. have it to worry about tenure and promotion, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the other project that I have going is is was not originally my project. I had suggested to Julia Andreoni, who did her PhD at Cornell and uh, completed it in 2021, when she did the Digital Humanities Summer Course at Cornell in 2019, I suggested that she take on as a project uh, the ide- the possible identification of the unknown male author in Veronica Franco's poetry. And she did that project. She was using software that had been developed by Patrick Juola, who's the acknowledged expert in the field or tijolla and team. He is the man who identified with a high probability uh, J.K. Rowling as the author of a cuckoo's nest. And then she came out and admitted that she had written this novel. Uh, But then the we were I was about to have Julia move forward and 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 prepare the results for publication or consideration for publication. And Joel and his team changed the software a little, and it 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 gave just slightly different results on some in some areas. So uh, as we there were multiple emails to Joel and his team, we didn't get an answer. Uh, I contact I had Julia contact someone in computer and information science at Cornell that person responded immediately and got us in touch with Federica Bologna who is writing a program in python to uh, to see what how uh, who the unknown male author might be and so now that's a that too is a collaborative project of Giulia Andreoni Federica Bologna and myself and probably some people in computer science as they've they've given Feedback and and uh, we've had to uh, introduce more data, and Federica is currently uh, running the program again. And I'm hopeful that that toward the end of the month we'll we'll have results and that they'll look good enough to be able to be put into print. So that that's another aspect uh, aspect of uh, what what we're doing here. Fabulous,
1: and it's all in collaborative dialogic spirit. And, and I agree there needs to be more of that. So let's look forward to, to doing that. Marilyn, thank you so much for sharing all of these valuable details about the book. Um, I really appreciate our conversation and especially this note that we can end on that. There's so much really to look forward to in terms of future dialogues to have. So thank you.
0: Thank you very much.